Joseph this week. A few weeks ago, we began a sermon series through Genesis 37 through 50. And so this is the second scene in the life of Joseph in between verse or the chapter 37 and 39, 38. You'll remember from a couple of weeks ago is a, is a side story related to Judah, Joseph's older brother. And here we pick up the story of Joseph at Genesis 39 with him being in Egypt. And one of the most fascinating things, you probably noticed it as we were reading through the chapter, is that four times, no less than four times, we read that the Lord is with Joseph. We say it in verse 2, verse 3, verse 21, and 23. So the chapter is bookended by this statement that the Lord is with Joseph and he is prospering him and everything that he's doing is successful. And yet, at the entire middle part of this story, from verse 3 all the way to verse 20, it doesn't look like God's with Joseph, does it? Think about it. How can it be that the Lord is with you, and first of all, you get sold into slavery by your brothers, who were going to initially kill you, and then second of all, when you're in Egypt, and you are prospering, and you are successful, you end up going to jail for being faithful to God. This is a very perplexing, perplexing scene. And I think it addresses a real critical question that we want to talk about this morning, which is how do you know that God is with you? How do you know? Because many people will tell you that the ways you know God is with you is by the external circumstances and blessings you experience in your life. But Joseph would say, that ain't how you read the script. How do you know that you have the favor of God resting upon your life? How do you know that you have the presence of God in your life? How do you know that God is with you? How do you know that you are blessed? Many preachers will come along these days and tell you that if you're healthy and you're wealthy and you're prosperous and you have victory in your life, then God is with you. Joseph doesn't have any of those things, and God is with him. So I want us to unpack three things this morning, of so, uh, three signs that we know that God is with us. How do we know that God is with us from the life of Joseph in Genesis 39? Here's number one. Here's the first way you know that God is with you. Whatever the situation, you seek to bless others. Whatever the situation, you seek to to bless others. We see this in the first six verses of the chapter. Joseph has gone down to Egypt, carried there by Potiphar, who bought him, the captain of the Egyptian guard. He works for Pharaoh, probably in his top counsel or one of his right-hand men. And it says in verse 2, the Lord is with Joseph, and he becomes successful. He becomes the master of the house of his Egyptian master. He's overseeing everything that, it, that Potiphar wants him to oversee. Verse 3, we read that the Lord caused all that he did, that is Joseph, to succeed in his hands. So much so, according to verse 4, that Potiphar made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And then verse 5 says, From the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, 
in house and field so that he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Joseph is prospering in the midst of it. But how is he prospering? He's blessing the master who bought him. He's seeking to be a blessing to the house of Pharaoh, such in the same way, I would argue, that he was a blessing to his father Jacob. Joseph is taking his gift of administration that he exercised in his own family and the way that Jacob had entrusted the care of his brothers and the oversight and management of all of his fields and property and animals to Joseph. Joseph has just carried on doing his calling right there in Egypt, even though an unjust circumstance got him shifted to a new geographical location. Joseph had every reason to be cast down and discouraged, right? He was sold by his brothers into slavery, into a foreign land. According to Psalm 105, verses 17 and 18, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Then Psalm 105, 18 says, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. That's the way the psalmist described Joseph's condition on the way to Egypt. This was not a great circumstance. He wasn't getting carried there first class. He was put in shackles and fetters and had a collar of iron wrapped around his neck just like every other slave that was purchased. But you notice when he gets to Egypt, he immediately begins blessing his master, serving with his gifts, exercising great stewardship and faithfulness to God, and God begins to exalt him. So what did he do with his success? He used it to bless others. You say, well, of course he used it to bless others. I mean, Potiphar put him up in a nice house. But what do we see at the end of the chapter? What's Joseph doing when he's sent to prison? Well, let's look. Look again. Verse, chapter 39, verses 22 and 23. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Okay, so let's step back from this. We've got Joseph doing this in the house of his father Jacob in Genesis 37. He's overseeing all of that and stewarding it so that Jacob's not even having to pay attention to it. Then he gets to Potiphar's house, and he's doing the same thing. Then he gets to prison, and he does the same thing. This man is remarkably consistent no matter what his circumstances are. See, this is the key to how you know God is with you. You don't change your calling based upon your circumstances. Your, the, the fact that you are a blessing to other people and that your calling is to serve for the glory of God doesn't change. He blesses others with his gifts and lives in the presence of God, whether he's at home in the comfort of his family, whether he's living in a nice palace with his Egyptian master, or whether he's in jail. Derek Kidner says, Joseph's outstanding abilities and integrity, crowned with the touch of God, were constant at every level. As prisoner and as governor, he was simply the same man. His responsibility before God doesn't change because he's gone from a palace to a prison. And ours don't change either. It just affords him with a new group of people to bless. Circumstances change, brothers and sisters, but our calling does not. And if your calling isn't shifting 
in the midst of your circumstances, God is with you. What if we all live that way? Whether we were at home, at work, at play, under trial, we sought to be a blessing to everyone we met. What if instead of trying to manufacture all the circumstances of life to serve us, we leveraged all the circumstances of life that God sent to serve others? What if we gauged God's favor on our life, not by the blessing our circumstances gave us, but by the opportunity to bless our circumstances afforded us? See, this has a lot of application to the way we approach our lives at work, doesn't it? Think about it. Three times in this chapter, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 23, I want you to see what is said about Joseph here in relationship to his work. Look at verse 6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Then verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. And then finally, verse 23. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Think, there's this statement over and over again that whoever's responsible for Joseph doesn't have to pay any attention to him because he's so faithful. What if that were our standard in the way we approach work? You know, that's the New Testament biblical standard. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, Ephesians 6, 6, we're called to work as wholeheartedly as under the Lord, not as men pleasers by way of eye service. That means when the boss's eyes are on me, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But as soon as he walks away or doesn't, you know, isn't, isn't paying attention to me, I'm not doing my work. Joseph is so devoted to God and so devoted to his calling that as he goes about his work life, people who are over him don't have any concern about him. That is our standard, brothers and sisters. We, whether we're in management or whether we're working on the lower end of the, of the, of the totem pole, our responsibility is to do our work so well that our boss, our manager is never called it like, of course they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. I never have a question about that person. They're always going above and beyond. I wish all my employees were like that. I wish all my employees, I could legitimately say, I have no concern whatsoever over them and how they're spending their time. That's our calling. Because in every situation, he was seeking to be a blessing to others. That's the first way we know that God is with us. Second sign of knowing that God is with you. Not only whatever the situation you seek to bless others, but number two, whatever the temptation, you seek to resist sin. Whatever the temptation, you seek to resist sin. This is the second scene. Joseph is exalted in the house of his master. He's doing extremely well. He's moving up the org chart. He's getting lots of responsibility entrusted to him. And Potiphar's wife comes into the picture. And we get this word in verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So not only was he successful, he was a good-looking guy too. And he was young. And Potiphar, Potiphar's wife begins to take notice of Joseph as we see. Think about this. How easy, how easy would it have been for Joseph to rationalize this? And go ahead and sleep with her. Think about it. He's young. 
He's in his 20s probably by this point. He's single. He's lonely. He's forsaken by his family. He's living in a far country. How easy would it have been to say, you know what, I deserve this. I'm just doing what I'm told. I didn't initiate this. She did. Who's going to know? The fact that he's young, he's single, he's lonely, he's forsaken, he's living in a far country, and the temptation is relentless. Did you see verse 10? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. This is relentless. And eventually, if you're a young, single, lonely, forsaken man who is living in a far-off country, forsaken by his family, you eventually wear down a little bit. But not Joseph, because God's with him. Joseph's not doing this because Joseph is some paragon of morality. He's not doing this because he's superhuman. He's doing this because this is what happens when God is with somebody. God is strengthening him. Remember the account of our Lord Jesus Christ when he's tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4? How does he overcome that? He's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, and then at the end of that account, he is comforted by the Spirit. What enables the Lord Jesus to resist the temptation of, the, of Satan is the, Holy, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the same with Joseph. It would have been easy for him as a man, and it also wouldn't have been safe for him as a slave to resist this woman, as we'll see in a few moments. Think about it. He's like, if I do this, I get in trouble. If I don't do this, I get in trouble. He's in a no-win situation. So the question is, is what ultimately enabled him to resist? I've got four things. Let's do a little anatomy of temptation here. Let's get down and see how temptation works and how Joseph, under the power of the Holy Spirit and with the presence of God, is able to resist this temptation. Number one, he understands that sin carries with it social impact. In other words, it doesn't just affect him. It affects everything around him. It, when we choose to sin, we are not just affecting ourselves, we're affecting all of our relationships. And Joseph understands that. Do you see that in his first response? Look at verse 8. But he refused and said, here's what he's thinking, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. So he understands that if I do this, I'm going to be violating the responsibility, loyalty, duty, obligation that I have pledged to Potiphar, your husband. He's a man of integrity. Even though he was sold into slavery by Potiphar, or sold into slavery by his brothers and purchased by Potiphar, no doubt, no doubt he's built a good relationship with Potiphar. I mean, Potiphar has not been beating him and abusing him. He's evidently been seeing what a blessing this, this slave Joseph is to him, and he's, and he's just entrusted more and more responsibility to him. And Joseph doesn't want to burn through all that trust capital by sleeping with the guy's wife. He understands the social implications of his sin. 
Number two, he also has a focus on the generosity and goodness of God. Do you see that? Look at verse 9 again. He is not greater in this house than I am, talking about his, his master Potiphar, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do this? Do you see this? Do you hear the language of Eden here? Go back to the garden. What did God say to Adam and Eve? All the trees of the garden you may eat of except one. This is the way Joseph thinks. He says, I have great privileges. I have great liberties. I have great opportunities. And he's forbidden me one thing. You. That's it. I have everything else. I can, I'm free to roam and take and do whatever else I need to do, but not you. But then Satan comes along to Adam and Eve and says, has God really said you can't eat from any tree in the garden? See, he takes the generous God and makes him the stingy God. That's how we get into sin. By focusing on all the things we don't have instead of all the things we do have. And that's what enables Joseph here to resist temptation. He focuses on all the things he does have, not on the things he doesn't have. So if you want to make headway against sin, you can't focus on all that the sin is promising you. You have to focus on all that God has already given you. And then the temptations begin to lose their power. So he has a focus on the generosity and goodness of God. When we focus, brothers and sisters, on what God hasn't given us, instead of on what God has given us, we're vulnerable to sin. Every time we willingly walk into sin, it's because that's happening in our souls. We don't believe God's good. We don't believe God's generous. We don't believe God's way is best. We believe he's withholding something from us that if we had it, we would be happy. And for a little while, we are. Sin wouldn't have any power if it didn't offer some pleasure. The power is, though, fleeting, and the promise and pleasure are not lasting. This is why awareness of God's goodness and generosity to us is a great weapon to fight sin. Charles Spurgeon said, When I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I'd ever kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. So what enabled him to hate sin? The love of God, the goodness, generosity, and kindness of God. If you think God's this evil tyrant withholding things from you, sin's going to have dominion over your life. But as soon as you get a hold of the fact that he loves you, that he sent his son to die for you, that everything that he gives to you is meant for your good and everything he withholds from you is meant to keep you from being hurt and damaged, then you will love him and serve him freely because you see how good he is. Number three, not only does he see the social aspects, not only does he see the generosity and goodness of God, he's aware of the sinfulness of sin in light of all these things. You see what he says about it? Look again at verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness? See, he's a guy who's got sin calibrated correctly. He doesn't say, ah, sin's no big deal. Oh, it's just one time. No, he says, in light of how God has treated me, 
in light of how generous my master has been toward me, in light of his goodness toward me, it would be a cosmic offense to do this. It would be a great wickedness. And then finally, a commitment to God birthed out of his generosity and goodness and a detest for sin. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He knows that his ultimate sin is not just against Potiphar. It's not even against Potiphar's wife. It's against God. Now, let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. If Joseph could recognize God's goodness in his life after being sold into slavery in Egypt, what excuse do you have? What excuse do you have? For not seeing God is good. Joseph is a great example to us here. He's a man who can rejoice in the Lord in the most difficult of circumstances. And we have no excuse. But here's the, here's, here's the truth. We need God to be with us if we are going to resist temptation. We can't do it on our own. This is why the Lord taught us to pray, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. And he taught us to pray that as much as we pray for our daily bread. Which means we need the Lord's protection every single day. And the way that we're going to resist sin is not by saying, oh, I want to follow the example of Joseph. Man, look at that guy's sterling character. No, we're going to be saying, if I'm in that situation, I'm falling apart from the grace of God. And I need God's presence to be with me, to strengthen me and help me. Second Chronicles chapter 32, I don't have time to turn us there. You can read it later. It's the example of Hezekiah and his prosperity and how well he's doing. And he begins to get proud and God withdraws from him and he begins to sin so that he might learn what's in his heart. And that's, that's something we're susceptible to. We can't get so secure in our righteousness or our morality or our desires that we don't think we need the presence of God to be with us every single moment of the day to keep us on the right road. So this is what we need to be reminded of, that uh, a second sign of God's presence being with us is the ability to resist sin. Now let me conclude this point with two lessons about sin. I want you to see the contrast between Joseph in Genesis 39 and Judah in Genesis 38, because I think that's the reason these stories are put side by side. Remember, Judah, tempted sexually, went right into it. Joseph, tempted sexually, avoided it. Now think about this. There's two lessons we learn from that. Number one, our sin, praise God, can be used and is used by God to humble us and to bring us close to himself. That's what we see in Judah's example. Judah walks headlong into sin. God confronts him with it. He repents. God's using him to bring the Christ into the world through his family. So we see that God can and does use our sin for his glory and our good. But number two, the fact that God can and does use our sin does not mean that sin is the preferred path to glorifying God. Okay? So don't think, well, I can sin, God will treat me like Judah. 
Even though God can use sin for his glory, and does, God never commands us to sin for his glory. Joseph's, in fact, think about this. If Joseph doesn't resist this sin, there is no Judah. Joseph's resistance of sin is what likely preserved the line of Judah seeing that it was most probably definite that Joseph would have gotten killed if he had slept with Potiphar's wife. And he didn't. And the line of Judah continued. So there's a lot of theology here for our understanding of how God works in and through sin. And I hope that you can understand and appreciate this. This passage, Judah's held up as an example as no one can ever out the grace of God. Praise God. There is no sin that we can commit that God can't forgive and use for his glory. But also, the value and the importance of obedience to God. And the fact that when temptation is resisted and when sin is overcome by the presence and power of God in us and with us, colossal good can take place. So that's a couple of lessons on sin that we see from the life of Joseph and Judah. So point number three, we've already seen three, we're looking at three signs here of how we know God is with us. Number one, in whatever situation we're in, we seek to bless others. Number two, in whatever temptation we're we're facing, we're seeking to resist sin. And finally, number three, whatever the misrepresentation, you seek to trust God. Whatever the misrepresentation, you seek to trust God. Now, we don't expect this chapter to end the way it ends, do you? This is not how a good news story is written. This is not how the story is supposed to end. How's the story supposed to end? It's supposed to end this way. Joseph gets sold by his brothers into slavery. They all die of cancer because they did a bad thing to one of people that God loved, right? They all die. Jacob dies too, or, or they all come to him, you know, and, and confess all they did wrong. They do, they do do that, so that'll be a second thing, but. So they all die, and then Joseph goes into Egypt, and he experiences this grace prosperity, and he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man, and none of this jail stuff ever, ever happens. right? He resists sin, and God continues to bless him, and he just moves up and up and up and up till eventually he rules over Egypt himself. That's not the way it happens. Here's why. Obedience to God does not guarantee the favor of men. Just because you do what's right in God's sight doesn't mean you're going to do what's right in everybody else's sight. What put Joseph in jail was obedience to God. You got got categories in your theology for that? You got to if you're going to read the Bible. Obeying God can put you in terrible situations. It was not his disobedience to God that got him in trouble. It was his obedience to God. They got him in trouble. His faithfulness to God brought about his rise and his fall. Joseph did the right thing. And the Lord, far from protecting him, allowed a great injustice to be done to him. He got lied about and accused of rape for obeying God. You can do everything right and everything go terribly wrong. Think about this. What is enabling Joseph 
to not retaliate here. He's been misrepresented, lied about, accused all over the empire as being a rapist, being in jail because he pursued another man's wife. All lies, all fabrication, all untrue. What enables him to do this? He is serving God for God's sake. And that's it. He's not serving God for any other reason but God. And I'm going to tell you this. If you live long enough and you try to serve the Lord for any other reason than the Lord, you will be disillusioned. If you are doing the right thing because you think that that will earn God's favor or will force him to give you what you really want, then when your obedience doesn't seem to be working out for you, you will get resentful, bitter, and angry. But if you are obeying God to get him in return, then you'll be able to love the Lord and be able to be sustained in whatever circumstances are sent. But if you're obeying God to get something from him in return, then that something is what really controls you as your God, not God. What your God is is what God gives you, which is idolatry. Because you want God to give you a certain kind of life, to give you a certain sort of blessing, to give you a certain kind of good life that you're envisioning. And when he doesn't give that to you, you say, I don't like God anymore. Because he didn't deliver on what I wanted him to deliver. He didn't bow to my idol. He didn't rubber stamp my idolatry. Oftentimes, our obedience to God is not really about pleasing him at all. It's an effort to control him, to use him to get what we want. The truth is revealed whenever God does not give us what we want, and then our anger and resentment reveal what we were really serving all along. Think about Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Why is the elder brother serving the father? To get what the father has that the younger brother keeps taking away because of God's mercy. I don't love you, Dad. I want your stuff. Quit forgiving this worthless brother of your, uh, and son of yours so that he keeps taking my stuff. That's why he's so angry. And that's Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and saying, that's all the ways you all serve God. It's the only reason you're talking to me. It's the only reason you're condemning me. It's the only reason you want to nail me to a cross. Because I am disrupting your control of God. Job 1, 9 through 11. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? I mean, there's got to be a reason here. Verse 10. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he'll curse you to your face. See, this is what Satan talks to God. See, he doesn't serve you for no reason. He serves you because of all the good things you put in his life and all the big family and his barns and he's prosperous. You take all that away, he'll leave you. Satan's question always remains current to us, doesn't he? Doesn't it? If he said that about us, are we, can we prove him wrong? Can we prove him wrong? Why do we love God? What's our motivation for worshiping him? How will we think about him the next time we suffer loss, betrayal, and pain? Do you see how we need the presence of God to be able to do this? We can't do this on our own. If we're left to ourselves, we'll get all bent out of shape about whatever God does. But when God is with us, 
and we get injustice done to us and hard trials come upon us because we're obeying him and we're sweetly submitting and we're, we're fulfilling our calling and continuing to do what we're called to do even in the midst of all that discouragement and depression and all that, God is with us. God is with you when you're like that. And we've seen that over and over and over again in our church as God has carried his people when he has stricken them. Scotty Smith says in a prayer, we are grateful for your gifts, but we want to glorify you, Father, when life's easy and when it's hard, when our health is great and when we struggle for our next breath, when our kids love you and when they ignore you, whether we get a promotion or a pink slip, when marriage is great and when it's a lonely place, when the harsh boss leaves and when the cancer returns, in every circumstance and story, we want to love, adore, and honor you. That's the way a person talks when God is with them. Joseph doesn't respond how we might respond, trying to vindicate himself in the face of all the lies that have been spread about him. He doesn't hire a lawyer. He entrusts himself to God and is patient and waits on him to vindicate him in his time. And just a word of of report, there is time to hire a lawyer. Okay? Just saying. He entrusts himself to God and be patient and waits on him to vindicate him in his time, and he gets to work blessing other people. Because this is how people respond when God is with them. In whatever situation they are, they seek to bless. In whatever temptation they face, they seek to resist. In whatever injustice or misrepresentation they face, they're trusting God. Now, how do we know that's how we know God is with us? Because that's how Jesus responded, and God was with him. Think about this. How did Jesus respond when he was falsely accused? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Because Jesus is the greater Joseph. What, and, and you think about what held Joseph. What held Joseph during this time? What kept him sane? The dreams. The fact that God had spoken to him. Remember, beginning of Genesis 37, he has those dreams given by God. God's word and God's voice is the loudest voice in his life. And may it be the loudest voice in ours. If God's word is the loudest voice in our life, no matter what our circumstances come, we will be sustained. Now that we've discussed the signs of God's presence, I want to conclude with how we get it. How does God come to be with us? I don't know about you, but I'm pretty rebuked by the example of Joseph. Anybody else? Convicted? All in favor? Say aye. Yep. Any opposed? You're lying. (laughs) I don't seek to bless in all situations. I don't seek to resist all temptations. I don't seek to trust in all misrepresentations. But there is someone who did. And he's my savior and he's the greater Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. He was continually Jesus our Lord Jesus was continually rejected as young man as a young man both and he was second in command. Jesus the son of God sent from God the Father, betrayed, misrepresented by those closest to him, wrongly accused, convicted of a crime, and thrown in jail. 
what pattern do we observe in this chapter? It follows the life of Jesus. Genesis 39 begins in exaltation, then humiliation, then exaltation. Right? That's the pattern of Jesus in the New Testament. It's precisely that pattern, the throne to the cross to the throne. And that's exactly the pattern of all of our lives in Christ. God dethrones us, humbles us, and brings us to himself. Jesus left the glorious presence of his father to come to this earth and be tempted, misrepresented, judged falsely, betrayed for our sin and for our salvation, and through that, raised from the dead and ascended back to the throne of the universe to give forgiveness to all those who will come to him. And that is how we receive God's presence. The presence of God has come to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And we must come to him, and we are blessed for Jesus' sake. Did you notice something? Last verse, Genesis 39. Look at verse 5. Look at what's said about Potiphar in relationship to Joseph. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. We are Potiphar. Jesus is Joseph. The reason we are blessed is because of our greater Joseph and his presence in our life. The fact that we have the presence of God with us in every misrepresentation, temptation, and situation is because we're in union with the greater Joseph. And God is blessing us for his sake over and over and over again. So grace and how we receive the favor and blessing of God is not the result of our obedience. It's the result of the greater Joseph's obedience. The fact that Jesus obeyed, Jesus lived the life we should have lived, Jesus died the death we deserve to die, and we're in union with him, we get blessed for his sake. Just as Potiphar was blessed for Joseph's sake. So if we're trusting in Christ, God's presence will be with us in all times of prosperity and adversity. Not because we're faithful and because we deserve it, but because Jesus is so faithful and Jesus deserves it and we're hidden in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to spend some time thinking again about your work in the life of your servant Joseph. And we thank you for your presence being with him and what we learn about how your presence works in our lives. Thank you for being with him in all of these situations and making him to be a blessing everywhere he turns. Thank you for enabling him to resist temptation so that the line of Judah could be preserved and we could have a Messiah. Thank you for helping him to trust you in the midst of misrepresentation and going to prison for the sake of his obedience and doing it cheerfully and willingly and hope with full of hope because of the fact that you were with him. And most of all, we thank you for the greater Joseph. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who was exalted to your right hand, had every privilege and power given to him and left it all, being humbled and humbling himself for our sake, that he might live in our place and die in our place and receive our sin 
that he might be betrayed and misrepresented and falsely accused and imprisoned, so to speak, nailed to a cross, judged under trial for our sin and for our salvation. And we thank you that you highly exalted him and you raised him from the dead and you gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Help us all to do that, every heart in this room, in these next moments as we respond in worship to enthrone you and to say that you are Lord. Every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray all this in his name. Let's stand together.